Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO at Clear Motor Marketing? I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collisions YYC listeners. It's with an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, Clermotive Marketing is 15. I wanted to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at clearmotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello at a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest today, Miss Emily Kine. How are you, Emily? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you for finding some time in your busy day to fit me in. And before we even get started, I got to give it a shout out to our mutual, our mutual friend, Miss Jerry Greenall, the rock star that she is for introducing us. Uh, If you don't know Jerry, please uh, get to know her. She is amazing. And when she says, Tyler, I've got someone to introduce you to, I just say yes. I don't ask any more questions after that. Yeah, she is extraordinary. She's a hard act to follow. I will say that for sure. Yeah, she is. A, she is 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 a, is a rock star. My wife uh, joined yeah. um, joined Spartan a couple of years ago, and they ended up being office mates. Literally, they shared a wall, and we got to and she, and I knew of her. She knew of me through mutual friends. But then we got to know each other, and it just got better from there. So huge shout out, because Jerry, I know you're going to listen to this episode. So huge high fives to you. But Emily, <laughs> let's dive in. Enough about Jerry. We if you, we 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 can bring her in later. Um, Vice President, Commodity Strategy and Trade Analytics at Arm Energy. So I'm going to plead ignorance, as I often do, because I find it's the best way to learn things. Uh, what, do you, what do you do? Where do you work? Give us a little bit of the elevator pitch, if, you can, if we can do that in maybe 30 floors or less, and we'll kick off our conversation from there. Yeah, the, the really short elevator pitch is that I'm an energy markets geek, basically. Nice. Um, but what I do for a living is I advise uh, C-suite and management teams, basically, about um, the dynamics that are sort of uh, moving commodity markets around that they might have exposure to. Okay. And then I influence strategy, um, craft strategy, really, I guess, around how to manage that price exposure. So be it trading, be it um, commodity marketing decisions, um, be it sort of uh, optimization of assets that they have. Um, we try and put all of the pieces together for them. And so, you know, I joke sometimes I'm an energy geek. I'm a storyteller. What I really try and do is synthesize a lot of data um, to help management teams be able to make decisions that are in the best interest of their company. Based on what is often an unpredictable future. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but yes. you're in the prediction business a little bit, aren't you? <laughs> uh, certainly a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Pro- prophecy, I, I prediction. Always... Where, where, where's the line? <laughs> where's the line? <laughs> I, I have a mentor that uh, says to me on a regular basis that if you're 51% right in this market, you're doing better than most of the funds on the street. So okay. uh, so I think what, what I can say is we, we pay very close attention to the inputs that influence price, but there's invariably in this uh, game, there's always um, outside influences that you don't expect that kind of creep up on you that really uh, can have a, a pretty outsized impact on what happens to prices. So the, the, le- the proverbial left hooks that come out of nowhere yeah. that she didn't see coming. When did you know you're in trouble when I was lying, staring up at the side at the sky um, and for yeah, and I, go ahead. Mm. I was just going to say, I, I would say that they're, they're happening more and more frequently because as the energy transition mm-hmm. uh, okay. sort of gains steam, what we're finding is there's less and less efficiency in markets. There's um, 
there's been a drop in investment, basically, that sort of uh, is creating price distortions. The market's always the market. <laughs> so it's it's always going to reflect all of the influences that um, uh, influence price, basically. But at the end of the day, what's interesting is that as we see sort of a sunset industry, like um, the fossil fuels industry is, you're starting to see some dislocations and some distortions as a result of less participation in the market. And so that creates a lot more volatility as well. And so to the degree that um, my clients have exposure to that price risk, that's something we want to be able to manage for them in a way that allows them to stay in business. So, Mm, okay. We could, I think we're going to, we could do a whole podcast on just what you said right there. So let's just start by putting some guardrails. Do you advise typically to companies in Western Canada? Like where is your purview in terms of like these C-suites and the management teams that you talk to, are they typically based, like I say here, very broadly being Western Canada, where are those conversations uh, kind of situated that you're having on a regular basis? So we have companies um, based in Western Canada, but uh, Arm Energy as a whole has an entire producer portfolio that um, advises to producers in all of the major producing basins. So that includes areas of Texas, uh, like the Permian Midland um, area, we're in the Rockies. Uh, We have um, representation. uh, Our gas book has representation actually on the West Coast and in Tennessee. Um, We have producers that we represent in the Northeast of Pennsylvania. So we we are present where the market is present um, in all of the major hubs. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, And we have quite a large uh, footprint of over um, 120 clients, give or take. Um, that number seems to change daily because the M&A activity in our business is pretty um, uh, significant at this point. But uh, we definitely, we have a footprint and visibility into all of the major producing basins. And I would say the fact that we have relationships that um, provide us with a lot of uh, proprietary intelligence at an aggregate level, that helps give us a really good proxy of what's going to happen from a supply perspective. And then we need to layer on the uh, demand pieces that influence how the market ultimately is going to price. Mm, okay. Does that answer the question? It does. It, <laughs> it, it does. Very. And with some complexity, which I love. Um, yeah. But you're advising to a company in Western Canada versus advising to a company in Tennessee or you know, just using those two as examples. Obviously, at a macro level, price is price, market is market. But how much does your conversation you might have with the Jerry Greenall? Just we'll keep picking on Jerry for this for this call. Yeah, on Jerry, when she's a Spartan, yeah, let's use Jerry. She's you know at Spartan, she's on the advisory board at Logan, and she's involved with so much. Would your conversation with her differ from her equivalent in Tennessee, just for the sake of context? So, yes, to, okay. like the short answer to that question is yes. There are regional dynamics that will influence what Jerry's price exposure is versus. Um, what a gas producer in Louisiana okay. or Texas or the Marcellus or uh, the Rockies. Regional influences for sure, including the ability to get your product to market via okay. some version of pipeline, takeaway capacity, and or rail. Um is that Certainly one? Of, is that one influence. of the bigger ones? Because I think just as the everyday person, you can't watch the media and not realize that that's a factor. Certainly for us in Western Canada. Yes, it's definitely a factor in Western Canada. It's not going to change um, in Western Canada once once the Trans Mountain uh, crude oil pipeline expansion is in service. Mm-hmm. Um, was originally supposed to be in service in the first quarter of twenty four. Right now, that's uh, in question. 
but I only mention that in the context of it's probably going to be the last major crude pipe that is built in North America. And then the Mountain Valley pipeline, which is the gas pipeline that's going to run from the Marcellus down to the southeastern part of the United States. That is the last interstate gas pipeline that we are expecting to see built in the United States. We will see additional build outs in Texas and we'll see build outs on the gas side from Texas to Mexico. But in terms of egress, what we have is what we have. And so if you do not have enough pipe capacity to move all of the supply that you are producing in your basin, your price is going to be deleteriously affected by that. And when you talk about sunsetting of an industry, how much are you factoring in those, those just the realities of what you've got is what you've got. I like the way you said that. <laughs> when you think about the next, because you're thinking, when you're advising companies, what kind of time horizons are you usually speaking? Are you looking fairly immediate up to 10 years out? Like these are larger, big, you know, capital invested type, 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 type projects. What's your typical timeline when you're expected to kind of, you know, see the crystal ball? So most producers are wanting to look out uh, roughly 18 months, give or take. Um, In the old days, it didn't work that way. Pre-COVID, we were in a situation where um, the lending syndicates had a lot more influence on how uh, price Mm. exposure was managed by the producer after COVID because there's been such attrition in the banking space because the lending books have limited their exposure now to oil and gas. We are in a situation where producers are living what we call much more within cash flow. And so to the degree that they need okay. to funding their own funding risk, their own story, right? <laughs> correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So and I, I think it's important just to mention that the time horizons are different depending on which segment of the industry you are in, right? So we have multiple players. It's always funny to me that people talk about big oil and assume that big oil, like one or two major players are just moving the dynamics of this uh, market and, you know, it's greedy oil companies basically that are responsible for why energy prices are high. But in essence, we have um, a huge amount of participation on the upstream side. So you have producers of energy, which is, that is all that they do. They produce energy, they sell that energy to the highest bidder and or the counterparties that they want to do business with. Um, You have midstream companies, their time horizons are considerably different than what an upstream producer is. So if you had, um, like, let's go back to the Jerry example, she's likely looking at um, drilling wells that are going to give her some degree of a three to six month payout um, period. So we are talking about a return on capital that's quite quick, especially right now. Um, because we're in an environment where cost of capital is increasing. So as interest rates increase, the hurdle rates to get investments actually approved go up because the cost of equity goes up. The risk-adjusted return has to increase to accommodate the fact that debt is more expensive. And so um, because of that, the cost of carry is very, very expensive to producers. So they want to limit what their cash outlay is um, to the projects that they know are going to give them a fairly quick return. And so in the case of a producer, producers produce. Uh, Midstream companies are the companies that are involved in the assets that actually carry what is produced to the actual market. So in the case of crude oil, a market is going to be anything um, that has significant refining capacity. Usually refining capacities are very close to highly populated areas. So in Canada's case, um, on the crude side of the spectrum, our largest market is the Midwest near Chicago, 
has a very large refining market, not just because Chicago is a big city. Uh, it also has a very large refining market because one of the largest drivers of demand, seasonally speaking, is agriculture. And the Midwest uh, relies very heavily on both propane um, and distillate, uh, diesel essentially for harvest season, et cetera. And so the, the midstream companies are essentially the companies that build the pipe. Uh, they negotiate with all of the landowners basically to um, try and get these pipes built. And they essentially have to de-risk their investment by securing enough s- supply via tolls. Like there is a transportation cost to get from one place to another. Um, and their risk-adjusted return is essentially secured by um, a, a tolling framework. Um, so they're but the a way much, they, a much longer time horizon. Mm, yes. I mean, Obviously. these types of projects, the payout periods, uh, I mean, it really depends, I guess, on a, a keystone, for example, is not, I mean, you're not even in the realm of a 10-year payout. Okay. Um, so keystone, for those that are unaware, you know, is a very controversial pipeline, uh, the XL pipeline in particular, because there is an existing keystone pipeline already. And so it's easy sometimes for people to get them confused. But the proposed... Um, XL pipeline that was supposed to run from Hardesty, which is essentially where all of the oil sands crude in Canada finds its uh, way down to Houston, uh, to to Cushing and then down to Houston um, for export. That was uh, proposed to be like an 800,000 barrel a day pipeline. And what they were looking to do was um, to get that built across numerous state lines. And it just wasn't able to, um, in it, I mean, speaking of regulatory risk, like just just getting the approvals in place and getting past the judicial um, hurdles took more than 12 years before TransCanada uh, or TC Energy now, I guess, um, finally killed the project. So um, but that that project would have had a very, very long payout period. And I would suspect that the reason that TransCanada killed the project is not just because um, the uh the legal battles are just becoming incredibly onerous. It's also because if we are in an environment where they are looking to essentially decarbonize by 2050, you are starting to run out of runway by the time that you're actually going to see a return on the investment. The capital, like for them, it was billions of dollars was spent even without the build, like the build didn't go ahead, right? So yeah, they hadn't even really started building the thing yet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was all sunk cost for them. And they, I mean, they had some of it built basically down to the border, but they, um, the, the biggest hurdles that they had were in Nebraska and in Montana. And so they were never, they were never sort of able to bring it across the line. And obviously just very symbolically, it was, um, basically the first order of business when Biden came into office that he wanted to kill that pipe, that pipeline. And so, um, but I, I think apart from it being sort of political theater, I think TransCanada was probably at the point where they were viewing the risk reward as too high. Um, and just based purely on on the timeline, (laughs) the timeline. Yeah. The economics, like they just wouldn't have gotten the payout, um, the return on the investment that they were hoping to get had they started when they proposed the project back back in whatever it was, 2010, 2012, whenever the original proposal basically went to the big regulatory bodies. How much does the, the, the political left hooks and the political theater and the, you know, like becoming the subject or the, the topic of, of, of an election or certainly of the rhetoric, how much is that a, a factor that's really hard to mitigate when you're predicting, mm-hmm. or is it pretty becoming clear that that is going to be a very anti or very negative fossil fuels uh, storyline mm-hmm. that gets run? 
So what's interesting is there's what's said and there's what's done behind Mm -hmm. the scenes and they're not always the same story. And so I think it's, I think it's (laughs) important. The government is not consistent, consistent and ethical. (laughs) Do tell. I did not say that. No, you know, sorry. My words, my (laughs) words. That's okay. I, I'm okay to say that. I'm speaking very broadly, Um, just government as as a concept, as a theme. (laughs) Yes. I, I think there is the theater element and then there's the pragmatic element, which sort of acknowledges that in order for us to retain the same quality of life that we have become accustomed to. And in fact, what, you know, many people want to continue to um, increasing in terms of quality of life, you have to have cheap energy. And so there have been a lot of efforts, I will say, from a regulatory perspective, probably behind the scenes to kind of move in a more pragmatic direction that enables approach. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. And I think, I, I think, um, again, this is an instance where the headlines don't always tell the full story. Um, I think publicly now it's well known. Uh, certainly, it doesn't seem like the State Department is hiding this, but um, there have been sort of direct uh, interactions between uh, the United States government and Iran, which previously could only uh, have any sort of diplomatic engagement through back channeling because they have no formal diplomatic engagement. There have been efforts on the part of the State Department to enable. Iran to export and produce more of its crude oil in an effort to prevent basically what's happening today, which is that crude prices are starting to rise again because people are starting to notice that um, demand is actually incredibly strong. We we have hit um, higher like record demand levels. Basically, that we we for the first time in a month hit 103 million barrels a day of demand, which is in excess of what we saw pre-pandemic. So. Um, and this is with a Chinese economy that's struggling quite a bit uh, at the moment, certainly a property market that's in the doldrums. They're having a hard time with sentiment in China. They're having a hard time with the consumer spending money because there's just a lot of fear right now around the youth and unemployment rate and the fact that um, the Chinese uh, property values have, have really mm-hmm. um, softened uh, over the last you and I, you, you and I touched so. on that on our pre-call a few, uh, like probably about a month ago now. Is that continuing to unfold in that direction? Because that was one of the kind of black swans or maybe not even a black swan, but certainly a, a reality that you felt was going to have an impact for sure. Yeah, and it does have an impact. It has an impact to the extent that um, China has built out a significant refining capacity. Um, so China is sort of in the same situation that the U.S. found itself in probably 15 or 20 years ago in that okay. it was very exposed to energy markets because it was a net importer of crude. Mm -hmm. What has really changed the story for the United States is the development of the shale technology that's enabled. Um, uh, Essentially, it's just a very different type of drilling. It's a horizontal drilling pattern that allows for much more proliferation of uh, resource that previously was, uh, you couldn't sort of economically extract. And so whether that's on the liquid side or on the gas side, um, that has enabled essentially the United States to become one of the foremost producers of natural gas in the world. Um, they are on track by the end of the decade to be essentially the largest liquefied natural gas um, player in the world. Um, but it's put them also in a situation where they are effectively by the end of the decade likely to be a net exporter. Um, in other words, they can produce what they need yeah, and for have, their and, own. And, have extra. and it's, Correct. And there's there there's granularity and sort of added complexity to it because uh, a lot of the refining infrastructure. So the, the last piece of the, the value chain, if mm-hmm. you want to talk about kind of the investment 
time horizon is um, refining assets or the downstream side of the uh, the value chain. And so anytime anyone is talking about an integrated company, what they mean is they both produce the resource and they have refining assets. So either a refinery or an upgrader in the case of Alberta, mm -hmm. which allows them to extract additional value out of the product. So yep. for example, right now, for every barrel of oil uh, that you run through a refinery, um, if you're using a very simple refinery margin configuration, in other words, like there's a bunch of pots and pans and depending on what your configuration is of a refinery, you're going to get a certain number of products out of one barrel of oil. So that could be diesel, it could be gasoline, it could be jet fuel, um, it could be, uh, you know, literally kerosene, you could have light ends, you can have what we call resid or bottoms asphalt, basically, there are a number of different products that are essentially yielded out of one barrel of crude oil. And what determines what your yields are is what the quality of that crude barrel is, and what the configuration of the refinery is. And so if you're just very simply, um, if we were to use what we call the three two one crack, which is basically for every three barrels of crude, you get two barrels of gasoline and one barrel of diesel. You're in a situation right now where you're making, you know, in excess of $40 a barrel um, because uh, refinery, uh, refined product inventories basically are, are very depleted right now. They're on the very low end of the five-year range. In some cases, uh, depending on the product, they're below the five-year range in the U.S. And in fact, we're in a situation where in the U.S. it's actually the refining capacity that's starting to see attrition and will be the reason that you see in the U.S., uh, gasoline and diesel prices being higher and higher and higher. And it, this goes back to that investment time horizon again. Um, a lot of these refineries need to put multi-billions of dollars into their uh, regular maintenance programs. So a lot of them are um, uh, on sort of a normal maintenance schedule where every four or five years they have to do major maintenance overhauls, but these are multi-billion dollar maintenance projects. And because we're in a situation where by 2035, certain states are trying to outlaw internal combustion engine vehicles, we are in a situation where refineries are like, if my product is worth nothing, I don't want to put a billion dollars or $2 billion or whatever the case may be into this maintenance upgrade because I'm not going to get the money out in the, call it 10, 11 year time horizon. The, the payout is, the runway is starting to get too short for these capital um, upgrades basically to sort of subsist themselves. And so now we're running into a situation where we're seeing erosion of refining capacity. Even as we are able to produce a lot more crude oil, if we can't refine it, we can't use it. And so we're going to be much more beholden to other countries like China, ironically, who China needs us for the upstream because they, they are a net importer. But part of the reason that they are a net importer is because they have built out um, huge amounts of refining capacity, second only to the U.S. They're running about 14 million barrels a day um, currently. Oh, so and you yeah. know, my mind spinning. So, Emily, I just this feels like a manufactured famine on its way to being come to fruition. <laughs> well, it's it not, just, to, not to be it doom and gloom, of, but it's hard not to extract no. some some negative threads out of the. If we run this out to the end of that 2035 graph, there could be some significant negative impacts from a, from a North American perspective, just thinking very much my own backyard. Mm -hmm. Correct. So you have to think a little bit outside of the box, right? I think, first yeah. of all, I, I think policymakers don't understand sometimes the unintended co consequences or knock-on effects. Extrapolate, you got to extrapolate the graph far enough, right? Yes. <laughs> this is the regulatory risk that exists in this environment. And so when I talk about 
regulatory risk or the government kind of injecting distortions into price and into the market. And you're asking me what the time horizon is. Well, in the past year after the Russian invasion, the U.S. decided to unilaterally release 180 million barrels of crude oil onto the market, which had to be absorbed through physical, like pipelines that have real physical constraints and have upstream impacts, right? If you're a Canadian barrel of crude that's trying to get to Houston and you have a ton of government crude that's in the gathering systems flowing east to west, uh, trying effectively to get into export terminals, you can't get to where you need to get to it. So it gums up all of the works. So there are there are a lot of unintended consequences basically from policy decisions. Um, and so I think this just happens to be one of them. I feel strongly like you could easily de-risk this problem by the government giving certain guarantees to the refineries, almost giving them incentives to uh, sort of stay open. You need to help them mitigate the risk, which is just... Right. Yeah, interesting. And I would say... Is there, is there, a, pres- me, is there a precedent for something like that? Like, do, to, And I'm assuming somewhere along the way in the, in the energy journey, the government's got involved in, those, in some instances? I mean, certainly there's been, I think, a large and controversial history of subsidies. Um, and certainly I would argue that they have not been popular. And so it's, you know, it's a little bit of political suicide. But I think what people need to understand is that you have to, there, there's a gap in, like, without making any commentary um, or judgment on what source of energy is the best source of energy to use, what people need to understand is that there's actual real physical constraints in the energy that we need from a, a density perspective. Like, there, there are laws of physics that actually apply to the molecules that we use currently. And the reason we use them is because they're the highest energy density containing molecules versus the molecules that we are trying to move towards, um, which are incredibly diffuse by, by comparisons. I think what people need to understand is that the excavation that's going to be required to meet these hurdles in terms of having everybody into EVs, it's not actually um, a physical possibility by 2035. So it, it sort of puts into context. So what we need to do is if we want to do this, then fine. We need to try and decide what we're trying to achieve, right? And so I think there's there's sort of a, a decarbonization imperative, which is fairly obvious and out there right now. But um, I don't think people understand a lot of the unintended consequences of some of the decarbonization. One of them is that um, you are going to have uh, traditional forms of energy um, lose investment, which is just going to make them more expensive. Um, but the problem is that I think in another environment where the market would be the force that is solving for this, the higher the traditional energy source goes, you will go look for viable um, alternatives, right? Like that's the law of substitution tells you that if something gets too expensive, you will swap it out for a fungible alternative. And there are no fungible alternatives. There is no way that by 2035, we are going to be able to have enough material excavated. We're not going to have enough critical minerals um, excavated and refined, which I think a lot of people don't understand that you. Can, it's not enough to just excavate the stuff. You have to refine it. All the refining capacity is in other parts of the world, which can get inordinately complex when you're looking at some of the ge- geopolitical things that are going on right now. Um, so for the government, I mean, it's really the government's role then to bridge that gap because they have to do what's in the best interest um, of the citizens of their country, right? And so for every country, that's actually going to be quite different. What's, what's interesting about Canada is uh, I would argue that we 
need to have a different conversation than the conversation that's going on in the U.S. Um, there, there's a general conversation that sort of needs to be had about the impacts of uh, renewable energy sources on the grid and the ability of, um, uh, you know, the mines to effectively extract what's going to be needed from an EV perspective. But in Canada, I would argue that we we have a bit of a different wrinkle in the ointment, as it were, or fly in the ointment, and that is weather. And I'm not sure if you've used your cell phone in minus 40 degree weather and seen what's happened to the battery, but there, there are going to be technological challenges, I think, um, uh, forcing a transition in certain parts of the country um, where this, this technology just can't be used particularly efficiently. I know that there are um, car manufacturers that are trying to move towards improving those efficiencies, but the reality is, is that that technology is not here yet. And so forcing a mandate when the car makers have basically told Congress, this is not a, this is not a feasible timeline. It's just not going to happen. Um, it, 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 like the problem is that you, you don't have a technology that can replace what you currently have in the timeline that the government's trying to make it happen. But in the meantime, your exist, you're also starting to make your existing energy much more expensive by virtue of the fact that investment starting to get considerably more gun shy. Um, well, back to your original, the, less efficiency um, changes happening more, more, more frequently and just less people involved in the space with the last couple of years of the energy sector, quote unquote, doing well financially. Has there been more investment come back into the space? Have you seen people, because there is still the follow the money, things are going well here, things, there's a demand, like peak demand, that's, you know, to hear that. Have you seen more or have a lot of the big lenders said, nope, this is our new policy, we don't invest in this, and so therefore it doesn't matter? So uh, I sort of need to answer that question two separate ways, because what's happening in Canada, I think, is a little bit different than what's happening in the U.S. I would argue that um, money remains gun shy in the United States, but I would argue that that's less a function of ESG and more a function of um, the private equity firms that all like literally put all of their eggs into the Permian basket or the shale basket. Basically, we're expecting reserves to be that the recovery rates basically of the reserves to be much, much higher than they were. And so the reality is, is the investment that they put into the ground, they never saw out. And so part of the reason that when you hear earnings calls for energy companies right now, and this consistent focus on dividends and share buybacks and shareholder returns is because in 2019, pre-COVID, actually, there was already an implosion of private equity by virtue of the fact that they were not seeing a return. Forget, it was sort of like Amazon. Push the, the ESG conversation aside and just talk about the reality of they got a bunch of individuals, a bunch of groups got burned and they want a very, very different model going forward. Okay, I appreciate Correct. this. Because it's so easy to now start to blame or to point at, I won't say the word blame, point at the ESG framework as the reason for that lack of investment. Hmm. Correct. So the other thing that I would just say is um, what you notice is that money that has scrutiny and is required to report publicly behaves differently than money that is family or private. And so to the degree that hedge fund exposure, (laughs) yes, um, anyone, you know, family wealth, generational wealth, basically that has an interest in having energy exposure. And if they want to do that through certain energy funds without having to disclose that, that's their prerogative, okay. right? And so I would say not, not ESG surprising has been a, a deterrent <laughs> yeah. probably for the big European 
um, lenders. And certainly, I mean, you, you have seen, you know, a lot of headlines um, in Canada as well. I would argue that the reason that some of the Canadian banks have kind of pulled back on their lending books is really just more of a function of the because of the increased volatility in the pricing of the commodity. In other words, we literally in the last three years in crude oil have traded from minus uh, $40 US a barrel when COVID um, essentially everything got locked down and uh, tanks at Cushing were full and producers literally had to shut in because there was nowhere to put the, the crude. Um, uh, so we were at minus 40 in 2020. And by the middle of 22, we were trading in excess of $120 a barrel in the front. And so to have 160, like to try and do the mathematical value at risk calculations that are involved in credit risk modeling for lending books, volatility is terrifying, right? Because um, it very quickly, if you find yourself on the wrong side of a trade, can put a company out of business. And so I think a lot of what has um, firmed in terms of lending limits is less a commentary on the merits of fossil fuels and sort of more just a prudent uh, risk management strategy on the part of the banks. So I think there's there's certainly complexity. I, I know that it's very easy for a headline to say ESG is killing us. And I would say that what has become uh, an impediment is just um, the weaponization of the judicial system in fighting, like the, you know, in fighting some of these political battles. And so that becomes very time consuming. It becomes very expensive. Um, you know, it can be incredibly onerous, particularly for smaller producers. And it, when it's drawn out, like even in the case of a, a behemoth, like a trans Canada over a 10 to 12 year time frame, they're like, okay, we're out, you know? And so really the end result of that is okay fine. They don't want it coming out of the ground, but there's, you, you cannot have your existing stand, um, standard of living uh, and not have some degree of cheap energy. So you have to find an alternative that doesn't just work financially and economically, um, but it also has to work from an energy density perspective. I don't think people understand the scale that's going to be required to, um, and, and this is what's wild is it's not just maintaining our current standard of living. If we're about to move into AI, the data centers, the energy oh, the requirements, the data centers. Nobody's talking about that yeah. as much as they should be. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. When you go down that yeah. rabbit hole of just the, the, the machines that are required and the complexity to make that actually function is a whole other kind of bag of tricks, right? <laughs> and the power that's required, right? Because we, we've been in a situation in Alberta a few times this summer, but more frequently in the winter, where our ability to produce power is so close to the max that we, I mean, you've seen it regularly in California, where they are literally telling people not to plug in their electric vehicles because um, the power grid is so tapped out. And I think what most people don't understand is there, there is a grid that needs to be on at all times. It's called dispatchable power. And renewables are intermittent sources of power that do not have rateability. Um, and they will never have rateability because you'll never be able to get enough in the way of um, battery excavation, basically, to, mm, to, um, to offset the when they're... Yes, like the... You know, people can talk about um, efficiency all day long in the technology. And I think what they don't understand is that um, someone used this analogy once and I found it quite interesting. But uh, just in the way that you've been able to use economies of scale and technological efficiency to make 
um, the IT devices that make our worlds go around smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Those same laws do not apply to the laws of thermodynamics and physics, right? Like, the, like we are, the problem is that energy density is energy density. You cannot make a material more or less energy dense. It just is what it is, right? It's like, it's bound by certain laws that you can't actually make more efficient. Now, AI can make the extraction and refining and processing of those um, materials much more efficient. It probably also can make the calculation about which combination of those materials is most efficient. They can do that probably fairly quickly. But the reality is, is what is required to get out of the ground to replace what we are currently using in the ground um, mathematically right now just uh, is an impossibility. And it's that that isn't me commenting in any way, shape or form on the merits of fossil fuels. It's just like, do you want to have the same standard of living that you have right now or not? Um, and and so this is what I think a lot of people are starting to step back and realize, like, um bringing this back to Alberta, obviously there were a lot of waves made in the last couple of weeks when the province announced that they were going to be kind of curtailing um, the the renewables decision. But what people don't understand is that um, a lot of these investments cannot be scaled. So they're very small investments in the grand scheme of things. Um, and they are dispersed far and wide. And so what you find up happening is you have a bunch of different applications that suddenly land use cumulative effects haven't been properly considered. And the cost benefit of the land use for these individual respective projects hasn't been properly considered. And um, what I was sort of getting to in terms of grid efficiency is that if you have intermittent power and you need to still have essentially rateable thermal um like baseload power is basically what we call it running at all times you need to have almost two grids that can accommodate the two technologies so um you you're increasing your cost exposure like uh, most people assume that the taxpayer is just going to pay for the energy transition they don't understand that they actually have exposure to this by virtue of the fact that any of the utilities that you use are just going to flow through their costs to the user base they're not they're not funded by taxpayers right so to the degree that they have to spend a lot more money on steel aluminum copper cement all of the things that go into making a power grid to be able to accommodate all of these intermittent sources of energy, they're incredibly expensive. And so that's the cost benefit that the province is doing is like, wait a minute, we have to build out transmission. Does it make sense to do this? What's your perspective on uh, the role that nuclear may play in the future when it comes to this conversation? Because I've been hearing some grumblings and a little bit of like, I don't know enough. I just know enough to be dangerous on this topic, but I'm curious about it. So I, I like nuclear a lot. Um, and I think what I'm most curious about, to be honest with you, is the the small modular nuclear yeah. reactors that they're talking about, because they're much more flexible and arguably probably less regulatory, less onerous from a regulatory perspective than the big plants. So what we like about nuclear is it is the one technology that actually is more uh, energy dense than yeah. what the existing fossil fuel um, model uses. It's rateable, so you don't have this inconsistency and stress on the power grid infrastructure. So something that people don't understand is that in Alberta, in particular, um, all of our baseload 
uh, power for the most part now is um, uh, powered using uh, natural gas fired power gen. And then we have considerable renewable. Um, we it's sort of a similar situation to Texas. I think most people are surprised to learn that Texas has more wind than any other place in uh, North America, including in California, which is so renewables focused, right? Um, but what's interesting is uh, in Texas, during heat waves, the wind does not blow. Yeah. In Alberta, during um, cold snaps, the wind does not blow. And so you need to have um, in order to meet what your power requirements are, you need to have this, it, I guess the best way to explain it is you have to constantly balance the grid supply with what the demand at that moment is. There's um, there's very limited flexibility in being able to um, uh, use storage basically to manage imbalances in the system. And so what tends to happen is on very windy or very sunny days um, in Alberta, you'll see natural gas getting backed out of the pipe in order to prevent the power gen from essentially being too excessive, right? You can only produce as much as you're effectively going to use at any one moment. Um, but what people don't understand is when you back out line pack from a pipe, the pipes are not really designed for that constant intermittency, it does create stress on the actual engineering mm, integrity okay. of yeah. the pipe. And so the maintenance efforts to keep the pipes intact increase. So those costs go up. But then also, because you need to have rateable power, you sort of you have an existing grid, but now you have to build out to accommodate all of these additional power sources. So your grid costs uh, double might be a bit of an overstatement, but certainly increase. Um, and all brought, of this is if you brought back to the consumer. If you brought something like nuclear to the table would, from your base power, would that be able to kind of dovetail into the existing system or would it also require its own kind of standalone uh, distribution model? It has the potential to replace. Certainly it is very, okay. very low carbon intensity. And so I would say like nuclear is a very good base load power source. It's okay. rateable. It can be run 24 seven. Well, it's a very high um, density molecule at the end of the day, getting back to your conversation about the molecule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it, this is sort of the jaws conversation, right? People are terrified of sharks, but very few people have had a shark encounter. I'd be curious to know what the true statistics are on shark encounters truthfully and what fatalities are. Um, but what I, I, <laughs> what I know in terms of, in terms of nuclear is like absent the, uh, Chernobyl boogeyman, there have been no fatalities from nuclear and nuclear has been used very safely for the medical field, basically for decades in Canada. And so, um, well, what, what percentage what of power in, in Ontario comes from nuclear now? Like they're, they're surviving on it on there's like, it's a fairly high percentage. Someone shared with me the other day. I'm going to, I'm going to Google it, it while we're talking. <laughs> it is a very high percentage. And actually they have um, just approved a bunch of new nuclear capacity buildup. So I think this conversation is starting oh, to be had more okay. and more because I think there is a realization that um, you're not going to be able to affect oh, wow. 50, the transition. 50%. Yeah, and I think it's probably going to increase. I know they they also um, use hydro. I know Quebec is primarily on hydro, uh, but I know Ontario does use a lot of nuclear. Um, they also, I mean, I, they are the the hub basically of Canada for nuclear medicine. Um, so the isotopes basically that are used in nuclear medicine. About fifteen percent um, of, of Canada's electricity comes from nuclear power. Mm -hmm from the world nuclear go. association yeah With 19 reactors mostly in ontario providing 3.6 gigawatts of power capacity sorry the rabbit hole is deep when you start looking at the no yeah no, but i've been I hearing mean, more and more about the nuclear story and that if we're going to even come close to hitting these very 
sometimes um, politically motivated or a great marketing uh, angle goals of 2030, 2030, 2050, that without nuclear, it's just, it's just physically not possible. And you've kind of echoed it in a, in a, in a, in a much more sophisticated way than I just did. <laughs> well, I don't know that I did that, but I, I certainly, um, I certainly think that it has a role to play to be part of the story. I, the problem with nuclear is that um, approvals tend to take in excess of a decade before you yeah. even start building the things. And the other thing is that they are very, the large ones are fairly inflexible um, in terms of being able to dispatch power to smaller uh, population densities, right? So you really need yeah. to have them in areas that are highly populated. Well, rural, com- so like nor- northern communities, small modular reactors that can be brought in. I, I was the way I correct. saw it was much more presented as a almost as an as needed basis. There was a portability to the conversation that I just never heard before. When you watch Three Mile Island or you watch any of those, like you see these massive imagery of what you think about when you think of a reactor. That was not what that was being shared in the article I read recently. Mm-hmm. Right. So. We've actually had small nuclear modular reactors for a long time. They've been powering nuclear subs. And so the technology powering submarines, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So the technology's been around for a long time, which also gives Hmm. me um, quite a large degree of comfort because people know how this stuff plays, right? And a lot of the smaller um, reactors are, I I mean, they're designed effectively to withstand. conceivably uh, withstand some degree of uh, international conflict, right? And so um, I, I always think that larger nuclear, of course, would make anyone in a seismic zone incredibly uncomfortable. What I've heard about the modular reactors, and I am not an expert by any means, so you should definitely bring a nuclear expert in to talk about this. I can speak to its uh, benefits as a rateable source of power mm-hmm. and an energy-dense source of power, which makes it um, on a population level, probably a cheaper cost of power, also much less y- land use. So to the degree that you care about more than just carbon emissions from an mm-hmm. environmental perspective, the footprint of a nuclear reactor is much smaller than the footprint that you will see in terms of land use for some of these other um, right. uh, transition technologies that are being employed for power generation at this point in time. So, 1954 was the first functional uh, nuclear submarine. <laughs> So to your there point, you it's been around for a long period of time. Sorry, the internet's my friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I I think anything that we sort of have attested and true, mm-hmm. and and what I understand is some of the new design proposals are quite innovative. So, like to the degree that we're familiar with how the technology behaves and what to do if something goes sideways, I think that probably gives people a certain degree of comfort, specifically because nuclear makes everybody nervous from a safety perspective. It does. It, it's, um, it's definitely the Jaws story. It's the shark story. You're absolutely it, right. It's, yeah. But, so in, in, um, in a case like that, and now now we're just kind of you and I chatting, is that just more more better uh, level of education or you know essentially a campaign to focus on kind of reprogramming or maybe give people another perspective? Uh, you know, we all watch Jaws and are scared to go in, in the lake where we know there's not even any sharks, but our mind kind of takes over. That's a long way to claw back from that. <laughs> the imagination is a powerful thing. <laughs> it is for sure. But I, I also think there's an element of not my backyard going on right and to be fair i would be part of this crowd as well which is like (laughs) yes Yes. i'm i'm fully in support of nuclear i just don't want it on my land right and so um i you know we've heard this quite frequently about wind farms um farmers don't want i mean the you know they're not totally benign turbines right they they 
they are mechanical, they make noise. Um, and so, you know, people don't, first of all, I think there's concern about just um, whether or not they're an eyesore on the property, just depending on whether or not you have used this, that, or the other. But I think the other concern is just, they don't want to be, you know, you spend money on your property, you want to be able to enjoy your property, you don't want it be encroached on by certain technology. So, I mean, there's a valid argument for it. I don't, I don't know if there's a reason to kind of explore crown lands for these types of mm-hmm. projects. Um, but I think certainly it's, in what terms are, it's of- such a, it is so complex because as you kind of conquer one side of the Rubik's cube, you just, you've realized that the other three thighs are still not in the right color. <laughs> That's what I love about the energy market though. Like, honestly, it's so <laughs> multidisciplinary. It's, it's the nexus of finance and, the real economy, like real life, the stuff that allows people to get out of bed and do their jobs and take their kids to soccer and feed themselves. Um, uh, it involves geopolitics. It involves psychology. It involves um, uh, a little bit of just understanding uh, geography and physics. And it really, truly, it's such a fascinating subject to me. And it constantly keeps me humble because as soon as I think I have the mental model locked and I know exactly (laughs) how this thing is going to behave, one more variable comes in and absolutely waylays all of my expectations. So I I think to me, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but it's so dynamic. It's interesting. And I think everybody at the end of the day, certainly people have their, their personal interests. Um, and, you know, they're betting on their horse, whatever that horse may be. I think I think it's sort of wise to try and take a step back, look at the 50,000 foot view and ask the question, what are we trying to achieve and what are we giving, what are we willing to give up in order to achieve it? And I think what's fascinating is mm-hmm. that's that tends to be where the gap is. Yeah. Um, and certainly from a policymaking perspective, I think that's where, uh, you know, it's, it's actually kind of refreshing. I think there is a little bit more pragmatism behind the scenes acknowledgement that, you know, this might take a little bit longer than people want to. Just for context, if it's helpful, even as we have installed all of this new energy capacity on the power grid, renewable power capacity, and I mean, if you were to look at the panhandle of Texas, there are windmills everywhere. Like, you would think, honestly, that every house in Texas is being powered by wind. Um, But what's so fascinating to contemplate, when I talk about scale, it's really hard for me to convey and communicate how big the transition is in terms of what we are asking the earth to bear um, from a new materials um, excavation perspective. But even with all of the windmills and all of the solar that's been installed and the fact that we're starting to see an increased share of electric vehicles in the overall small vehicle pool, we're still in a situation where in the last 20 years, uh, the share of fossil fuels in the total energy mix has only gone from 86% to 84%. 20 years, we've lowered 2%. And so it's not enough to say we need to get off fossil fuels. It's like, fine, if we want to live in the dark ages. and um, Which we don't. It's like, be clear, yes. we, we all want more, but we don't want to give up the conveniences and the luxuries and the privileges that we have, especially living in North America. And there's yeah. a whole other part of the world who wants... Their turn at "quote unquote" the middle class, if you want to run that narrative out a bit, right? <laughs> right. And so, I—I I mean, to spin this into sort of a positive story is I don't—I don't want people to think that this is a total exercise in futility. I think that you know, mm-hmm. all along the way in the American innovation story, 
you have seen people willing to take risk to be innovative and there have been a bunch of wild failures. Um, and that's just the process that we're in right now. It's a painful process to kind of innovate and figure this stuff out, right? Like we're in our own kitty hawk right now. Like we're trying to figure out how to fly. We are. The technology will eventually get there. There's some wild things happening on the technology front. Um, the room temperature superconductors are fascinating to me. Graphene is something that Canada has a lot of. Okay. So that is, a I only, I've only heard a little, little bit about that. So I don't really know. Yeah. The, the, someone brought that up today. Like, have you considered this? I'm like, no, I have not. <laughs> What's always so fascinating to me is there's sort of a cohort of people that, um, you know, label themselves as, uh, um, other than kind of conventional energy. And I think what people need to understand is that the science minds that exist in industry are extraordinary. And these people have their entire careers um, essentially learned that the smallest efficiencies make really huge differences when it comes to a company being profitable or not, right? And so these people are really good at this. And I'm not saying what they're going to solve for is going to be on the fossil fuel side of the equation. I, you can apply engineering talents and um, chemistry talents and physics talents, all of which Alberta has a ton of. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people do not realize um, how incredible uh, the science community is in this province. Mm. But I've, I've, apply... I've discovered that through these conversations of how much horsepower we have in this province that kind of flies under the radar a lot of the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think to leverage that talent pool is the way that you kind of start bridging the gap. And industry, I think, to a large degree needs to be involved. There is acknowledgement and recognition that everybody wants to do better, right? Um, and, and I think we are seeing that too, like I, from an optimistic perspective, like even the last five years, things are being done differently. And my wife's been in oil and gas 20 years. So I just listen and see the things of companies she's worked at before and just the new ways of approaching, bringing a well on and some of the optimization techniques they were using. And there was a lot of nervousness, but they were trying a new way to bring a well. And it was just interesting to watch and listen sometimes as a, as a spectator and especially being at a startup, sure. everything's got a lot of optics right now. And she's like, ah, oh, just compared to how we did things four or five years ago, it's a completely different approach, you know? And that's just me watching over her shoulder <laughs> at a very kind of like micro level on the whole, what we're actually talking about. For sure. And I would say like Alberta's regulatory framework is quite impressive in the sense that, um, you know, there is substantial emissions monitoring, right? We, we are in a province that actually requires producers to report on everything that they produce. And um, that is going to be including, you know, all of the methane emissions. So there, there's huge incentive basically for producers to become more efficient, to um, improve kind of a lot of their instrumentation, um, to, uh, you know, to upgrade facilities basically to um, essentially limit the amount of emissions that the industry um, in the production process creates. I understand that the argument, um, and this is hilarious because I, I don't even really understand how we got onto the transition conversation, except I think we were talking about how government can uh, influence price and, and create distortions in the market. And so we're, we're at this very interesting inflection point where this just happens to be topical. And I am certainly not the transition expert. I probably should have uh, disclaimed that um, previously, but it's, it's very much a part of my world right now. And I'm having a lot of conversations about it. Um, 
but yeah, all of that to basically say that like, uh, industry is really trying, I think, to, to improve a lot of how things are done. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of these small baby steps that over time can have um, a fairly impressive impact. And so I, I just think that it's going to take everybody basically to try. And if this is the problem that we choose that we need to solve, um, then it's going to take sort of all of us together, right? It can't, I, there are, there are the scientists who focus on the climate, um, in various disciplines. There are the science, the scientists and the physicists and the engineers that focus on energy. And the two are actually completely separate fields. And so what's interesting is you're trying to solve the problem of one discipline by changing the discipline of another. And so you have to have the two sides talking to each other, right? Because you want the experts in the room. Like, I mean, to me, the the polarized nature of it is not helping us get there faster. (laughs) If I was going to put a pin on that, like for like, to your point, like enforcing a change on another group immediately does not um, create warm fuzzies. (laughs) No. And just from a psychology perspective, you've never, probably in history been able to act enact a change that is this drastic by behavior modification and that's something certainly that's being employed in you know in the uk right now they're looking at these ultra low emissions zones that are already starting to put small businesses out of business right and so you've seen enormous protests you've seen um uh it's been quite fascinating to sort of see the intersection of where real life sort of meets policy and i think you know, the discussions are going to continue. And I'm, uh, like I said, this wasn't meant in any way, shape or form to kind of be a criticism. It's just meant to kind of highlight that there are a lot of unintended consequences that impact um, the market and by extension, people's lives by some of these policy decisions. And so it's just better if all of us get around the table and try and solve for um, whatever it is that we're trying to solve for. Well, and how to set up industry for what they're best at versus the government, what they should be you know, doing and getting everybody in the right lane. But I think that that's where it gets pretty blurry pretty quickly when it becomes short election cycles and, you know, public opinion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, I, I sort of feel like there's two parts of the job. There's running for office and winning election, which is sort of one part <laughs> of the job and there's governing, which is a different part of the job. And, and, the two don't often have a lot to do with each other, if I'm perfectly honest. Seems, seems and so, way. yeah. Um, if it did, we I might mean, be getting different outcomes, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I'm naively optimistic. I have hope that... <laughs> you know what? We should definitely f- finish on an optimistic note. This conversation yeah. is quite deep and quite... You, you did warn me, you said, Tyler, there's no way we're going to get through this in 40 minutes. And I don't think we're even no. through it, but we're creeping up on, on the hour. And, um, which really doesn't matter to people like, well, what is it? How long did your podcast last? I'm like, well, how long is the conversation? <laughs> a good conversation last sometimes all night, sometimes all afternoon. I really appreciate your perspective and just the intricacies of the interdependencies between all of it. And sometimes just like, you know, we, you and I first chatted, like the reality of the, how much is in that molecule and how does this molecule compare to that molecule? And we can wish it and we can publicize it and we can politicize it. But at the end of the day, how much energy do we need to live the life that we have? Because very few of us want to give up what we have or compromise. Sure, we'll make maybe try to make better choices and maybe we'll do a little less of this, a little more of that. But ultimately, the idea of giving up on 
something, a, a level of quality of life. That's a tough one. Most people really would balk at that. I think I do. I would. Well, I do. I the cost benefit is really if you're not willing to give it up, what are you willing to pay for? Yes. Then, right. Yeah. And that's really where the market comes in. And then you just have these added complexities of, okay, if you want this technology and you're not going to be able to have that technology without being able to continue to engage, um, uh, you know, with countries that you have tenuous geopolitical relationships with, mm. um, it, there, it, it's, it is much more complex than just just shut energy down. Like I, I just, you know, I, yeah. I find these yes. reductive headlines incredibly unhelpful. And, and I really think that the focus, instead of arguing about what the problem is, I think we need to figure out what we're solving for. And much more of the focus needs to be on the problem solving instead of the finger pointing um, at this point. And yeah, again, I one, feel like I'm one, lecturing one, that one, wasn't one, my one's, one's easy and one's hard collaborative yeah, yeah. and actually working on a problem is a lot easier than going, it's your fault. <laughs> That's quite easy. <laughs> it's quite indulgent, yeah. I would say. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard problem, I think, that we kind of have to solve. And in the meantime, my world is infinitely more exciting by virtue of the fact that you do have a lot <laughs> no, of no, 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 no from dull days. Mm, yeah, no yes, dull days. Exactly. Well, Emily, I think um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say to be continued because I think there was there, there. Well, not only is the world evolving, but I feel this topic. I can I'm gonna go back and listen and take notes and and then write down all the questions I should have asked when I was in the moment, but I was still busy processing <laughs> everything you shared with me. So, one, thank you for coming on. I do this because I personally get to have amazing conversations with really cool people who are passionate and very engaged in their fields, which you clearly are. And then hopefully, I get to share with my audience and they can walk away probably with as many questions as answers from this one because you really opened a lot of little cans of worms and. Left them sitting, which I loved. So, thank you very much for your passion. And um, if you if if you'll have us, we'd love to have you back. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love. I I feel like what's funny is we hardly touched on what I actually do. I sort of explained on a cursory level what I actually do on a day to day basis. But um, certainly, the bigger problems, more topical problems of the world, are something we kind of scratched the surface on. So. Yeah, we certainly took a much broader narrative, which I think is really speaks to the complexity of it and the intricacies of how many factors there's actually at play versus just stop this and start that, which is where the headlines tend to go and. Yeah, if you want to if you want to get into a good debate on this conversation, you have to be so informed. It's almost overwhelming. What well, is overwhelming? <laughs> yes, and sometimes I think you don't necessarily need to get into a, a debate. You need to just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. That's kind of I, I feel like that's where well, first let's stop getting into debates and start getting into discussions. That might be a good start exactly. right there because words matter. Words matter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Agreed. Emily. Well, that that was a nice positive. Hey, if uh, somebody is dying to to learn more, talk to you more, sit down and have a chat. What's the best way? Is it they reach out to through Arm? Do they reach out to you on LinkedIn? Do you, do you have a pref- do you have a preferred way of people to get a hold of you? Um. Uh, generally, most people reach out through ARM, I would say. Cool. Um, most of the interactions I have with people is um, through my company. So it's ARM Energy, and they're headquartered out of Houston. Um, and probably fairly easy to find Arm Energy, Arm Energy dot com. Yes, there's a website, <laughs> there's a phone number, yeah. and there's and there's an email. Like, <laughs> companies, uh, if they're if they're doing well, aren't making themselves hard to get a hold of. <laughs> yes, yes. So, exactly. so the best way is to reach out through Arm if somebody wants to get a hold of you. Perfect. I always love to just throw it out there. There's so many ways to get in touch with everybody. What's the preferred or what's the most effective? Is always basically that question. <laughs> I. I am remiss to say this, but I I don't even have notifications on for 
um, any of the social media media accounts that I hold. So I, I I just sort of feel like if you want a timely response, the best way is probably <laughs> to reach out through the company. Otherwise, I may not talk to you for a year. Yeah, I'm I'm with <laughs> you. The only one I do have on is uh, I think uh, LinkedIn does go to my email, but that's it. All the rest I have turned off. If I decide to go check them, I'll make that my. I don't need Bing Bing Bing. I'm too easily distracted. I know myself. I'm just going to turn those off. I did that a long time ago. It was one of my better moves. <laughs> yes, attention attention is precious. So it's something that I try. <sighs> Yes. Ruthlessly protect. Yes. Boundaries are very important in life. Uh, Emily, it was so good to get to know you. Thanks for sharing your insights, your wisdom, and uh, what the passion for what you do every day. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Tyler. 